0: One of my intentions with the Born to be a Badass podcast is to bring on the show people who work in the area of helping survivors of an incident deal with the aftermath, whether that's mental, emotional, psychological, or physical. I believe it is just as important to shine the light on what women can do to recover from the life-changing event that an encounter with danger and violence can be. And so today's guest is one of those people who works in that space. Lara Eisenberg is an extraordinary woman that I was lucky enough to meet through a coaching program that we were both part of. And when I met her, I knew that I had to bring her on the show. When she and I first got to talk about what it is we were up to in the world and the ways that we work with people, We realized that we work with very similar populations and that we each hold a slightly different piece of the puzzle. So whereas I work with people in the self-defense realm, she works with people who have been through some sort of an incident and she helps them with the recovery from trauma. It's a fascinating conversation and she talks about a lot of things that I really didn't even know were possible especially in the area of something called somatic experiencing, which was something that I had never heard about until I met her. So I think you're going to love this conversation, and hopefully you will learn as much about how to heal after trauma as I have done through talking with her. Here we go. Welcome to the
1: Born to be a Badass podcast the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head-on and shines the light of what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jolicoeur.
0: Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur. Today, I have quite a treat in store for you. My guest, Lara, is somebody that is unlike anybody that we've had on so far, and she brings a completely different voice to the conversation that I just can't wait to bring and I know you're going to love. Lara is a licensed psychotherapist who focuses on spiritual psychology and somatic therapy. She's a licensed professional clinical counselor, embodiment coach, somatic experiencing practitioner, yoga therapist mindfulness instructor, and trauma touch therapist. She has dual master's degrees in psychological counseling from Columbia University, extensive experience and education in stress management, trauma, addiction, anxiety, embodiment, sexual health, and awakening the feminine. Her experiences of objectification, abuse, violence, and instability as she was growing up led her into a journey of exploring how women and girls relate to the world. Realizing how much the trauma in her own life had affected her connection to her body and spirit, she sought to change that and underwent quite a journey, eventually arriving at a place of peace. Her mission is to help women restore the natural harmony that exists between body, mind, and spirit, and deepen their connection to the language of the body, sensation, desires, needs, intuition, and emotion. I was looking at her YouTube video introduction, and at the very end, there was a line that really caught my attention that I think really captures who Lara is and what she's about, and that is restoring women's connection to body, mind, soul, and sacred expression. Welcome to the podcast, Lara Eisenberg.
1: Thank you so much. It's, it's truly an honor and pleasure to be here and serve your audience and help in any way I can on their journey.
0: Well, there's so much that we have to talk about because you work in an area that I have very little experience with and um, an immense curiosity about. So I have a lot of questions. <laughs> so I hope you're ready to, mm. to do some explaining because I got I got lots of things to ask you. I like to start with a quick little round of pretty simple questions just to kind of get us in the groove and flowing. So are you ready to start with those? Sure. Okay. What is your favorite comfort food or indulgence?
1: <laughs> this is going to sound really funny, but um, it's actually a major date. Um, yeah, it's a very specific kind of date and more found in like the middle east but it's it's a medjool date usually with some kind of nut butter on it
0: wow i have never had anybody answer the question with something that was actually like a real food as opposed to the normal conversation goes with chocolate so the medjool date is a really interesting (laughs) choice (laughs) what is it about that combination of the date and what you put on it that makes it so cool
1: Well, I'm very sensual. So I think the texture of both, the date is very juicy and like plump. And there's like a lot of sweetness and flavor. And then the nut butter, usually like organic natural nut butter, is like thick and creamy and more dense and dry. And then something happens when the two come together. It just feels... I mean, I guess when you're a kid and like when you like the peanut butter and jelly sandwich or something, but this, this is, this is <laughs> like a more sophisticated version of it to me, I guess, maybe because Medjool dates are so expensive. Um, but yeah, it's something about the way that they blend together it feels so incredibly like delicious to me.
0: It sounds like the kind of thing that you really have to take your time with. It's not like, I'm just going to sit here and eat a plateful of them. It sounds like one is quite yeah. a luxurious process.
1: Yeah, I definitely recommend if, you know someone trying a fresh, very very fresh medjool date with their favorite nut butter.
0: I'm going to put that on my list to try. Okay, what's your favorite place to go on vacation?
1: Oh my gosh, um, I think I have three: um, Bali. Um, I lived in Spain, so I have to say Spain, and maybe Israel
0: three completely different environments.
1: Completely. Oh, yeah, right. And then I just went Hawaii. Now, yeah, I would still keep it to like um, Bali and and Spain and Israel.
0: Is there anything in particular about each of those places? You Because know, they're very different places. So like, what would draw you to each one of those if you were like, oh, I have two weeks. I'm going to go on vacation. What would make you choose one over the other?
1: Um... I think for, I think Bali and Israel are similar in terms of their, there's a spiritual depth and richness that I respond to for different reasons. Um, And there's just the the beauty. I mean, Spain is also really beautiful, but there's, there's such history, especially in, in Israel and, you know, having three different religious groups kind of coexisting, especially in, Jerusalem, you know, there's like a Muslim quarter, Christian quarter and Jewish quarter, like being there and having each quarter next to each other. There's something so beautiful and rich and there's, I love the music and just the Middle Eastern culture. And then, um, Spain, I lived there and I think in my other life, I was a gypsy. I love like dance. a so Sevilla was very special for me. The freedom to express and music and dance and history there in the Spanish language. Um, And then Bali. Yeah, just it was was very health oriented. There were people from all over the world. So depending on what I was feeling and how much time I had, I definitely would choose one of those three if I had to do an extended stay somewhere. You know, like a month, I would want to go back to those three places. And I've been to a lot of places.
0: Yeah, I love those three different aspects of you that come out in those three different places that you like. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. So this kind of goes along with that. Then what, what is your number one self-care practice?
1: I would say my spiritual practice and, um, yeah, I've been meditating, doing devotional practices for like 20 years. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's changed and evolved to sitting meditation of like 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes to maybe a five minute um, self-love practice or metta, which is like a loving kindness practice to like a movement or a central dance movement meditation. So it kind of changes as I've evolved and also whatever time I have and also whatever phase I'm in, like I'm pregnant now, so... <laughs> For a while, I couldn't really meditate. I was not feeling well. And then as the pregnancy evolved, I started feeling better, but feeling more tired. And so sometimes it'll be a movement meditation, sensual music. Sometimes it'll be just a heart-centered meditation, love, love self-love, and then offspring. And sometimes it'll be like a more formal seat, seated practice. Um, but I would say that's the biggest one. Um, alongside with... Natural foods, nourishing my body with with food, mm-hmm. natural foods.
0: Mm, I love both of those. Okay, so what words of advice would you give to younger women, women in their 20s who are just kind of starting out as adults? What, uh, what advice would you give them that maybe you wish you had been given when you were that age?
1: Mm. Well, I just had a, a client... Just just before our call, that was actually 23. Um, She's finding her way, and I think the the first thing would be to love and value yourself from the inside out. Um, To know your your own heart, to know yourself, to know and nurture and deepen your intellectual capacity, and to befriend your body, Um, which means setting healthy boundaries, which means nourishing your body with healthy foods and knowing when someone or something isn't safe, when you know your body and you could feel your body and understand the sensations in your body, then you know what it needs, how to engage in self care and how to stay away from situations and people and energies that are not um, healthy for you in whatever way that I don't even mean violence or danger. I mean, just healthy, energetically healthy. Some people are, have really poor boundaries or, or draining or, you know, narcissistic. And so it's really starting to listen and befriend the body.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something I wish I had been told when I was in my 20s. Um, I think you know, when, mm-hmm. when I was making my way, I tended to be extremely trusting of other people. And there were a lot of times that I distrusted the warning signs that I was getting about whether or not somebody... Was a trustworthy person, and um, I definitely, mm-hmm. definitely didn't understand about boundaries, and didn't have a very loving relationship with my actual physical being. So those, I wish, yeah, I wish I'd heard that when I was in my twenties too. That would, that would be great. Can you share a little bit about your path from your younger days? You mentioned when we spoke earlier and included in your bio some of the aspect of growing up with trauma and with things that led you on a different path. Can you sort of give us a grounding in where you came from?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I guess I'll start just briefly mentioning just the intergenerational piece. So I have um, grandparents that are Holocaust survivors. So most of that entire my maternal side was murdered. In the Holocaust. So I came from, in terms of uh, trauma, a pretty significant traumatic background and and immense grief. So that was on my mom's side and was born into that space. And then my father um, was more narcissistic and abusive and alcoholic. And my brother was as well, at least that was the, what he learned. And so growing up in a house where there was some emotional and physical abuse and also it's not, you know, it's funny before I did the, the trauma work that I do, I always thought sexual abuse was you actually have to um, touch the person or penetrate or fondle in some way, not realizing that women and and men, right? That we can be violated just by the penetration of someone's gaze um, by someone who has really poor sexual boundaries and their energy is just oozing out and it's making us feel really afraid just by their energy or just by their words. And so it's a, like sort of an energetic violation, but the feeling of contraction and a fear and discomfort is the same um, in terms of the physiological response in the body. And so there was a lot of like sexual inappropriate behavior, not necessarily touching, but. That actually led me to have a lot of challenges in, in in that area in terms of my sexual health and expression. So growing up in that never in in that environment, and then it was also another additional set of challenges was I, I grew up in a uh, very objectifying culture. It was uh, a lot of Latin culture, and um, the men were, you know, very objectifying, walking down the street, making comments, and it caused me to kind of want to just hide and disconnect from my body. So I had a lot of anxiety. I developed like a sugar addiction. I also tended to lean towards like love addiction, which was basically looking for love outside of myself to complete myself. And so it was usually love, attention for men, or food. And it I just was suffering a lot. And you know, I ended up going to graduate school at like 21. So I started studying psychology and starting to understand myself on a whole other level. And then I started studying spirituality. And then I ended up learning about trauma. Because even though I was studying spirituality, it was almost like spiritual escapism. Like I still was engaging in those behaviors of maybe attracting or needing the love of men that were not feeding my highest self and also using sugar or like starches and then being obsessed about my body. So then restricting a lot of like overeating and then restricting behaviors that I realized I was just trying to regulate my nervous system. And I also was like a way of like self-punishing. I think I had internalized the feeling of not being good enough and of feeling violated that there was something wrong with me, something inherently wrong with me, and that my worth was based on my body and the way that I looked and what I did. I always wanted to be a good girl, right? So that led me just kind of to feel like disempowered and um not treated like what I think like a queen. And I think all women should be treated like queens, we're the bearers of, of life. And there's nothing more sacred that <laughs> life comes through us, right? So I started to get into like trauma healing modalities, like somatic experiencing, um, integrative restoration, and other kind of modalities. And those are body based modalities. So I started to inhabit and understand my body and restore boundaries that that were not that I kind of had either too rigid or ruptured boundaries where right? I didn't have a firm grip on like what was not okay, what was okay, or even if I did, I was afraid to speak up. So yeah, I just inhabited my body in a different way. I learned I got into recovery programs for um, food and and learned about how I was escaping with food and obsessing over body image and um, really div- cultivated like a deeper sense of self-worth through all of these spiritual and psychological practices um, and came into my body, into my heart, into my mind, into my soul as a woman in a new way. I did a lot of like priestess work and sacred feminine work, all of this Work that would allow me to engage in ritual and practices that would affirm my worth and value in the world and within myself. So, um yeah, I traveled all over, spent time studying lots of different practices in different parts of the world. And then I came back and I'm towards the end of my journey where I am now is I met a wonderful, wonderful, deeply spiritual, and connected man, and now I'm pregnant and it's just it's a testament to all of the work that I've been doing, and um I want that for every female on the planet, so
0: yeah, that's a really powerful picture that you have painted of being in a place that I think many of us are as women, which is looking at our bodies, feeling about our bodies as if they are the enemy, as if there's something wrong with them because there's something about our body that attracts the kind of attention that we don't want. There's always something mm-hmm. about the body that's not okay. And, and the stupid thing is, of course, it can be not okay in so many different ways in our minds. Like it's too thin mm-hmm. or it's too big or it's too muscular or it's too not muscular. I mean, all these ways that we come up with, But basically, we just see the body as being an adversary and something that is always causing problems. And to go on the journey that you went from having the sugar addiction and sounds like eating disorder as well, Mm -hmm. all the way through to where you are now, which is, you know, the body is really not your enemy. The body, this is, it's what people have always called the sacred vessel, right? And I always used to laugh at that. And then, of course, I became a mom. and it's like, oh, I get it. (laughs) but for you you know that was a beautiful yeah. picture to paint of of that journey and how much work it can take to overcome this belief that we have that there's just basically something fundamentally wrong with us and that we need to fix our bodies or do something so that we won't be on the receiving end of the kind of attention that we don't want or we won't be treated the way we're being treated So I really applaud you for taking that journey and I can see how powerful it is to go on that journey with somebody who has been through it. So I I guess what I'd like to know is how did your relationship to your body change over those years and, and how has that led into the kind of work that you do now?
1: Um, well, I think that what, how I mean, I did, I practiced a lot of yoga and dance. So I was in my body, but not in my body in the way of understanding, um, you know, several things. One, the felt sense being with sensations that were uncomfortable, that may be indicative of like something I'm feeling that I really need to listen to versus bypass. Um, so starting to do more of the trauma work that's body based. I started to, I already had an in because I had done a lot of yoga and dance. So I already had a capacity to feel my body, but it was always limited because I I had so much fear and activation. So once I started doing the trauma work is really when I started to inhabit my body. I, so I could tell you what I, what that did for me. Would that be Helpful?
0: Yes. I I mean, I want to ask you about the different types of trauma and, you know, the symptoms and the effects. But yeah, I definitely would love to hear how that came up for you and what you did with it.
1: Yeah. So I, when I started doing the, the trauma work and more of the embodied work after doing like yoga and mindfulness meditation and dance and stuff like that, which led me to the trauma work, is I started a few things. One, started to understand boundaries. So when someone, when I was around someone who did not feel safe, I started to notice the sensations in my body. And I don't even mean emotionally. I mean, even just, I don't mean physically unsafe. I can even say emotionally unsafe, like they're narcissistic, or they don't listen, or they are borderline abusive, or there's something about them that feels unsafe. I'd start to feel into my body. My body would contract. And that would be the indication I need to exit this situation, this relationship, limit my time with this person, because sometimes it could be family members. So listening to this is not safe. And what boundary do I need to make with this person either right now or ongoingly? Like I said, if it's a family member, it's more complicated. So what do I need to do now to protect myself in the future by saying, yeah, I'm only going to spend an hour with this person once a week, let's say it's a family member or something, or I can't see them because it's too upsetting. But our body usually informs us when something isn't safe or isn't okay, or is too much over, like overwhelming. And then I, I also just started to feel into my power again. So getting feeling into my stomach my core, and I know in different traditions they say different things, right? It's known as like ahara, like our center, um, and really feeling like below the navel, just how I feel that power. And so standing up straight, like even my posture, learning if I feel a sense of shame, usually my posture is like down. So I'd play with that. I would lift my arms up and back, lifting up my heart, feeling my core. So it was almost like a physical strength. And with, with that too, there's, there's certain muscles in our bodies that are affected by trauma. So it's like with our quadriceps, that's related to our territorial boundaries. So we, by strengthening them, like doing squats or like kicking straight up, we can feel and strengthen our sense of boundaries. So there's also like, stu- you know, studying like body psychology, I started learning a little bit about these. How these muscles impact our sense of containment or safety or boundaries, so like the deltoids, like the arms also, right when when there's a fight or flight response, our body wants to run or fight. so whether that means when I'm afraid, I go into the bathroom and I push against the wall to engage those muscles because those muscles want to be want to mobilize, right? Because my system thinks there's danger, even though there might just be a conversation with like a boss it's still, those muscles want to mobilize. You go to the bathroom and you press, you know, press onto the wall to get some of that excess energy out. Or if I need containment, I might rock myself and hold my arm. So you give yourself a hug and start rocking yourself because those same deltoid muscles, they'll help with containment, which is why we'd swaddle a baby. So you do the same thing. You hug yourself and you rock. And that could be a sense of soothing the nervous system. So all of these things I learned about containing strong emotions or setting boundaries or finding my own power. It was one thing intellectualizing that. It was another thing to understand my body in relation to that. You know, let's say someone yelled at me. What did I want to do that I couldn't do? I wanted to say, stop and put my hand out. But maybe I froze because maybe I learned growing up to freeze. As a woman, we tend to freeze so it's learning like what were those self-protective responses that couldn't emerge during the time of overwhelm that wanted to after. So, like after, you know, I would do that. I would say, stop, you know, something to allow the body to complete the response that it naturally, innately wants to complete, but it couldn't during the time of overwhelm. Because if we don't respond to that, that excess energy still stays in the body and it usually manifests this either you know, an overly activated state of like anxiety and like panic or like a shutdown of like depression. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I love that. I will confess that I downloaded and read your book because I just, I couldn't wait to talk to you. So that was my, <laughs> that was my stopgap. Mm-hmm. I just going to read your book while I was <laughs> waiting for our interview to come up. And there were some things that you talked about oh, in there you. where I just, I was just sitting here going, Oh my God. Oh my God. Look at this. And, one of the things that you mentioned that I highlighted was trauma is stored in the body, affects our nervous system, overactivates branches responsible for survival and alters our brain chemistry. That was like mm-hmm. a holy shit kind of realization for me. And uh, then your whole discussion on the effects of the freeze response and the difference between how human beings and animals process the energy of a freeze is just mind blowing. So I would love for you to just describe what kinds of trauma there are and what the symptoms and effects are. And then let's get into some of the things that you covered in your book.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, the kind of different kinds of trauma, I know in terms of what I wrote in my book, that was like about five years ago, but um, I'll go through a few. So you know, obviously there's emotional trauma and physical trauma, and sexual trauma, and spiritual trauma. In fact, I've been, a uh, have been involved in a lot of that in terms of like from communities, not involved, but in the sense of like people asking me for interviewing me for what I've seen of, um, you know, various yoga teachers that are spiritual teachers that have crossed the boundary and have had various affairs with students or um, meditation teachers that have had affairs with students that can be very, very confusing and traumatic. And um, especially when there's a hierarchy, hierarchical role and someone takes advantage of that. So, and then there's, you know, there's medical trauma that especially with kids, well, actually can be a lot with adults too, but um, being strapped down and, and just various experiences where, It didn't go, you weren't the way that you needed it to go, or you weren't received with love, or anesthesia didn't work. You know, there's so many different things, and there's like refugee trauma and um, even community violence, just living in an environment where there's a lot of community violence. And uh, yeah, and then there's, you know, complex trauma where it's, or, or actually, I would say there's shock trauma. That's one kind of um, incident that happens versus developmental trauma, which is usually like consistent abuse or consistent something that's happening ongoing in your childhood as you're, as you're growing and developing. And then of course, like natural disasters. So <laughs> there's a lot of of different, even bullying can be um, ongoing bullying, right. It can be traumatic for, for a child or, it's happening at work or so I think I think yeah, there's probably more, but those are the ones that are coming to my mind right now.
0: That's mind blowing. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can experience trauma.
1: Yes, exactly. And what might be traumatic for one person might not be as traumatic for another person. It depends on the resiliency of your nervous system and the support you had after and before and your own, you know development attachment how how secure your attachment is i mean there's so many factors that can that can influence also your response to a traumatic event is it trauma do the symptoms remain where you feel like it's affecting your life and debilitating you or you know are you okay pretty quickly you're resilient so it didn't really become a traumatic event it so depends on your own nervous system and and support and various factors
0: this episode is brought to you by Damsel in Defense. Damsel in Defense creates products that allow you to enhance your safety through items that you either carry on your person in one of your bags or purses, or something that you can keep in your home or in your car. Damsel also is involved in fighting human trafficking by creating Damsel Houses Currently there are two, one in Cambodia and one in India, where girls are rescued from sex trafficking and they are given housing and shelter and helped to form a plan to build new lives and no longer have to sell their bodies. So the goal for Damsel is to have a home in every country that their partner organization, which is called Destiny Rescue, is rescuing in. I became a damsel rep not because I really wanted to sell self-defense products, but because so many of my clients wanted to buy them, and I wanted to a give them a good vehicle to buy products that I knew were good quality products that were workable, and B, because I wanted to be able to provide them the training to actually learn how to use those products and be realistic about when they can and cannot be helpful. So I became a damsel in defense pro and if you are interested in checking out their products which cover a wide variety of things, everything from stun guns and pepper sprays to batons and striking batons, tactical pens, you can access products from damsel through my website by going to CynthiaJoliker.com resources and that's where I have highlighted a few of the products that I really appreciate and think are a good value. So check those out if you're interested. And remember, you don't have to be a damsel in distress. You can protect yourself and can get some help in doing that through Damsel in Defense. Okay, so I have to confess to being absolutely fascinated by the connection to the nervous system. Can you talk a little bit about how that shows up?
1: Sure. Yeah, so obvious well it's not until so obviously to some people but you know if you had an event that was kind of overwhelming that you can be in a state of just ugh, sadness anxiety some people dissociate numbness they're socially just completely withdrawn that is is very very common and the brain areas that get really affected are like the amygdala which is like the warning center right when it tells you when something is is not right right they make it starts to activate, and I think the hippocampus which is responsible for memory and the prefrontal cortex right where we that's where we think logically that's just the human brain so only humans have that all of these areas get affected and there's an increased cortisol with traumatic stress and Norepinephrine. So these these can create lasting changes in these brain areas, and um, you know it can affect our ability to self regulate. If we're living in a more like subcortical region of the brain, more of the primitive parts of the brain, it's really hard to think when you're functioning in the part of the brain that's mammalian or reptilian, right? Those lower parts. We share that with mammals, you know, the limbic system, and then the reptilian brain with reptiles. So. We might be really really reactive. That's when addiction comes in. Not thinking, we're using substances to regulate, um, especially when we're in a state of anxiety or depression. Usually, when you know people can get stuck in a self-protective response, like fight, flight, or freeze. And typically, I I think it's very common for for females to get stuck and freeze for two reasons. One, it becomes like a and it's an unconscious response, right? Like, but it's also the socialization to be good and be quiet. Um, so some is like survival. It's unconscious. Like, if you're in, there's a big, big person there, like scary. Your system just shuts down unconsciously. But there's also the socialized part of it where there's this pressure to be good and be quiet and not say anything. Um, so the, the, the freeze is usually leads to like depression and numbness and, Maybe possibly dissociation and um, let, being really lethargic, and then fight or flight usually has that's more of a highly sympathetic, like a sympathetic activation. So that is more anxiety, and nervousness, and restlessness, and maybe panic things like that. So you know, you think about like super aroused or like just like blunted affect um let me just think so i just in affects the sense of of feeling safe in the world so people who become very socially withdrawn um maybe they don't want to connect with the communities that they've that would probably be a source of connection and support they especially if it's relational trauma if it's trauma with a person then they will have the anxiety around people like if we had a natural disaster and that was the trauma we were experienced you know an earthquake then we would be afraid of earthquakes. But that doesn't happen as common. So when it's relational, it happened with a person, we will then oftentimes fear that person. So let's say it happened with an, a male. Then we might have this fear of males. Let's say it happened with a female, like our mom. Then we might have this feeling of mistrust with females. So it becomes also like... it Deepens actually creates a lot of like stereotypes. Um... Like That's what I think trauma is what creates those stereotypes, whether it's trauma in our lives or we've inherited Um, racism, sexism, all of those things. Well, maybe not necessarily sexism, but there, there there tends to be a fear over or about certain populations or events or situations based on the initial experience. So say you heard a song, right? That's that reminded you of the time of your trauma. Then every time you hear that song, you can be thrown back into that traumatic state and those symptoms. So it really it affects our brain, our emotions, our behavior, um, what we seek out, what we avoid. It affects like our sleep. <laughs> I mean, it's almost every part of our lives. Um, and some people, they don't realize it because there's some self-medicating going on, whether that's food or alcohol or sex or being in relationship or overworking or, you know, we might not recognize those uh, compensatory or how how we compensate. You just made
0: something like pop out in my brain right there because back when you were talking about types of trauma and, and there was a lot of instances of things that just kind of happen, like as you're living, you know, as you're growing up stuff happens and they're just things that you end up having to deal with and you kind of do and you just keep on going, but you might not actually recognize that they did have a traumatic impact on you because you, you know, you kept on going, right? But, but the impact is there. It's in your body. It's affected your nervous system. It's influencing your brain chemistry. And it may be years later when you're a workaholic or you're an abuser in a relationship or something like that, you, you may not even realize there's a connection between those traumatic experiences that you had, which may have been like not being in a car crash or, you know, having an assault happen, but maybe something like I'm thinking like you take a child to the doctor when they're infants and they get shots. That's trauma.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, they, they uh-huh. scream, they cry. They don't want it to happen. It hurts. It hurts. We never think about how that's affecting them and how that might travel along with them. You know, my, my youngest son had a traumatic growing up because he was the fourth. He always wanted to keep up with everybody and he would do things, try to keep up with them. And he'd end up like one day he jumped down about 12 stairs because that was what the older kids were doing. And, of course, he wiped out down at the bottom. Mm. You know, that's a trauma to the body. The frustration that he felt mm-hmm. all the time when he wasn't allowed to do things that the others were. We would look at that and say, well, that's just mm-hmm. growing up. But for him, I'm sure the experience was traumatic. And I think we don't even right. We don't even know when we're experiencing stuff like that that it will travel along with us. So I guess the connection that I was making was... We're ignorant that that's actually happening. Like we know when we get assaulted, we know when we're in a car wreck, we can recognize that as being trauma. But all of these other things that happen, it's just kind of blowing my mind to realize the impact that they can have and that it'll accumulate over time. So when you reach a point where you want to work with it, what do you
1: do? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll respond to that, but I wanted to also mention one thing because I I can relate to what you're saying that, you know, living in under a state of constant stress can mirror the physiology of trauma. So if you're living like what your son said is constantly, it was stressful to try to get the attention or to kind of connect and be like the other, live up to the other kids. That was very stressful. And so, yeah, that physiology mirrors the physiology of trauma. Um, and I wanted to make reference also to my experience of, I had, I had a lot of problems, you know, in terms of my sexual expression and health because I grew up with a family member that was very womanizing and misogynistic and would make comments about women's bodies all the time, would look at me when I was a teenager and I was getting dressed to go out. And he, he was so inappropriate with, with women all the time. And I saw it and I was constantly contracted and, um, kind of afraid and uneasy. And I always felt like so much sexual energy, even my own arousal, which was so confusing, but there was just so much sexual energy. And I, I always said to myself, but he never touched me, but he never touched me. And it wasn't until I got older and understood that being around someone who's that objectifying and sexualizing of women and being, being the recipient of that gaze and just being around those comments, it was traumatizing for me. It was really traumatizing for me, and all the problems that I had, I thought, "Oh, why do I have this? He never actually put his hand on me, and I realized that just energetically, just being in that space with that person, um, being the, you, receiving that gaze and hearing those comments, that that was traumatic for me, and that that was as valuable um, inform- that was valuable information for me to do my own healing and reclamation around female sexuality and sexual health and, and reclaiming that for myself. So I want to respond to what do you do once you realize this, but I wanted to just add that because sometimes we think, Oh wait, but that wasn't really trauma. It didn't, it doesn't matter. It's if your body responded in that way, that could be the traumatic for you, even though it may not be like in the, you know, if you Google trauma, you might not come up with under that. So that, that's the one I want to give people the liberty to to um, look at a situation and say maybe it wasn't like a single traumatic event, but it was so stressful that it that it mirrored the physiology of trauma and it felt really scary and traumatic for you.
0: I just think that's really valuable to highlight that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, because there's so much like minimization and trivialization, like trivializing things, especially... You know, I had this woman say the other day, like, uh, she, she was always told she was too emotional, you know, she, she would respond to things and she was too emotional. And she was responding to feeling unsafe in her environment and being told that you're too emotional can make you feel like you're crazy, um, kind of be a form of like gaslighting. And after a while, you get even more emotional and more uh, angry because you're you're being invalidated constantly, and you're you know something instinctively is not right, and you're you're being told that you're too emotional. So, you know, there's a whole other level with females, a whole other level. There's the the event itself or the ongoing events, and there's the socialization and the constant objectification and the constant sexualization. So, there's a whole other level of um, healing that happens versus if a man was violated. Right, they don't deal with these years and years and years and years of, of of being devalued in patriarchy. Or they are affected by patriarchy, but in a different way. Um, they don't have that same level of the the socialization and the objectification. So, to answer your question, I'm just going to kind of go back to your question: What to do? I mean, I'm biased, but I always feel to see to find things practices that help you to become more embodied and more empowered so i think those like similar to your work and what you teach or some martial arts somewhere or um and then to see and to feel the strength to feel your muscles to feel your bones to feel your skin which is your first boundary to inhabit your body in a way where you feel physically strong and then i recommend also You know, if there's any addiction, any compensation by, you know, the self-regulation and doing, eating, sex, love, food, to find a recovery program that can help you. And then I think the the spirituality is finding something greater than yourself to find meaning and purpose, finding community, being engaged with like-minded women, sitting in women's circles. And then lastly, and this obviously I'm biased and I feel like it's so important, is getting therapeutic help. So going to see a therapist and someone that's somatically trained, someone that understands how the body comes into play in the healing journey. Like it's so important that someone understands the mind and the body and how they're interrelated. So someone, there's just a few modalities, you know, there's somatic experiencing, there's Hakomi Um, There's EMDR. I recommend it if someone is also body trained. So they're trained in the body too. Um, So some body oriented modality, sensory motor therapy.
0: Let's dive into that whole area of somatic experiencing because you were the first person I had ever spoken to who used those terms. And it sounded intriguing. And like I intuitively understood what it was. But... It was very new, and and I imagine that not very many people have ever heard the term and probably don't know what it is. So like, what exactly is it, and how is working with somebody who does somatic therapy different from just going to a behavioral or a talk therapist?
1: Well, somatic experiencing is a specific modality created by Peter Levine, so it's a body-oriented approach to healing trauma. It like releases traumatic shock. But basically, it, there's various modalities. That's what I practice. And it's changed my life. It's been 10 years now that I've been practicing and studying it. But there's other modalities. Like I mentioned, Hakomi, there's sensory motor, there's internal family systems. There's other modalities that are also good in terms of healing, resolving trauma. But somatic experiencing, what I do, it's looking at small like in a titrated small amounts of traumatic energy, the energy that's stuck in our system and working in the body. So for example, if I say, if you start telling me a story of something that happened, right? And we're in a traditional talk therapy session and you just keep going and going as you're going and going, your system is getting tighter and tighter and tighter. You can actually make matters worse by overriding the system's response. We have to stop and take small pieces of the story. So let's say you're saying, yeah, I was at work and my my coworker told me I, I did a bad job and then they walked away and and then I mean you know, someone else said the same thing and people are just not supporting. I would need to stop you and say, okay, so when your coworker said that to you, what did you notice in your body or what did your body want to do? right? You're, there's a self-protective response that wanted to emerge. You don't want to just sit there and get mistreated by everyone. But talking about it is just going to be an intellectual banter, right? Back and forth. The body has a response. The body wanted to protect itself. The body contracted. So if you ignore that, the system can get more and more and more and more contracted where there's like small little physical responses. There may be a shallow breath or maybe a shift in posture. It's like, we want to look at those responses and say, okay, what's happening in your physiology right now? Because the dysregulated physiology is going to lead to a lot of chaos in your world, right? Inability to manage emotion. And when we when we look at the physiology and, deal and address the body, it actually shifts the brain chemistry. So... You know, if you can hold positive body states, like, okay, so let's say you said, "Ah, I wanted to say, stop, you're being disrespectful. Or that's not the kind of feedback I want, right? Let's say you said that to your to your colleague or whatever. Then I would say, okay, so what do you notice in your body? When you said that? What do you notice? You say, "Ah, I feel powerful. Great. And then maybe the body lifts up. And I say, do you notice your posture? You just stood straight up. Let's hold that. When you hold that in your body for, let's say, like 10 or 15 seconds, You actually create new neural pathways in the brain. You're imprinting that experience. So you can experience yourself as more of a powerful person from the bottom up versus these talk therapies that just top down. Talk therapy is good, but talk therapy in and of itself only, I don't think you can achieve the results. I personally don't. So I hope that makes sense, that example of a work situation.
0: Yeah, it does. It does. So how do you work with somebody then when they come in, you gave a really good example of stopping the story and saying what was going on with your body right then. I think if that were me, I would probably say, I don't know. It would be really hard for me to get back in touch with that without some help. So how do you work with somebody after the fact to kind of unpack what was going on?
1: Yeah, I mean, there there a lot of people do say, I don't know. And when I start working with people, I say, so I might ask you a question about your body. And you might say, I don't know. And just say, I have absolutely no clue, Lara. And just say that. It, it, to understand and to tap into the body is something that can be very new for people. So I usually start to say, well, I can do one of two things in that scenario. If you can imagine this happening to your child, what do you feel in your body? You just saw this happen to your child. Someone just berated or scolded or what happened in your body. And then someone might have like, oh, well, that I felt. <laughs> I just felt that. Or we might say, okay, let's just go with emotion. What emotion do you feel? I feel like anger. Well, how do you know you're angry? Well, my muscles are tense. Okay, boom, there. You just sense that your muscles were tense. That's the one thing. And if there's still no access inside to sensation that I sometimes I'll do things where I'll just have them tighten their body, all their muscles and relax and tighten and relax. And then they'll say, I notice warmth, I notice heat. So I'll actually do like body based exercises to people to start inhabiting their body in a different way. Um, Sometimes I'll use different fabrics, like, like something hard, something hot or temperature, hot, warm, and you start to develop like a sensation vocabulary. Um, but some people, so we develop that over time. Sometimes people are more image oriented. So they'll have an image of like, well, when you think about that, what image comes up? Oh, I feel, I see like the sunset and I, and I, I just love the sunset. Okay, great. When you see the sunset, what do you notice? I just makes me feel relaxed. Right. So sometimes we might go through in somatic experiencing, there's like different channels. There's like sensation, there's image, there's the movements of the body. And then there's like affect, emotion, and then meaning, like what you make of meaning of. Like dogs are scary if you got bit by a dog, or then you work through your trauma, dogs are no longer scary. The meaning changes once you work through whatever the event was. So we do different exercises to build sensation, um, vocabulary, or sometimes I'll actually have them envision something happening to someone else. And it's easier to notice what's happening inside their body when they can be removed from it. And imagine it's happening to someone else. And then again, like I said, sometimes we'll do behavioral movements, jumping up and down, squeezing, um, touching something cold. So then we start to get into the body in a way that they maybe haven't noticed before.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I love the parallels between what you do and what I do. It's just fascinating to realize that what you do starts with the brain and how the brain works. And it includes your physiology and your nervous system and how you respond to danger and threats. That's exactly what I work with, but in a, you know, on the flip side, basically. And what you were just saying about asking somebody to think about, you know, what if this happened to your child? Well, my gosh, sometimes with women working in a self-defense realm, you know, they'll say, well, I just wouldn't. I probably wouldn't do anything. And I'll say, okay, well, if this was happening to your child, what would you do? And then, like, I'd kill him. And sometimes that refocusing to somebody else is easier. It's an easier pathway to figure out what's actually going on inside of you. So I, I love these parallels. And yeah, it's making me curious. Do you work with survivors of assault and other kinds of violence?
1: yeah absolutely. usually the majority of my work has been developmental trauma and then sexual abuse or assault um don't, I have not done as much with like natural disasters or medical trauma or car accidents um those are all traumas but i I think my work who I attract because my specialty is usually some kind of sexual harassment um Sexual abuse, sexual assault, and then developmental trauma, which thing, things sort of events that happen ongoingly in childhood. Those are the mostly who I attract because of my background and in like sexuality, healthy sexuality, and reclaiming body, mind, and spirit for females.
0: So, how do you work with women who have experienced a sexual assault? Because I think if you have been violated at a sexual level it is a complete game changer in terms of how you see and are willing to interact with other people at a physical level. How do you work with that? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, it's similar in the sense of one must start to find safety in your body. So it's again, coming back and finding safety in the body. It's setting healthy boundaries. So there's exercises to learn how to come back into the body, how to feel the skin. Actually, I have to say like, this is my arm. This is my hand to feel and reclaim the body for itself. Like this is mine because that's what happens with trauma. There's a body-mind split. To restore the body-mind connection, we have to do these body-based exercises so boundary work too, right? So teaching people, okay, so how do you notice when someone's not safe, safe versus unsafe, teaching women how to say no, um, but feeling into their power. So when you say that, what do you notice in your body? Oh, I start to feel strong again, I start to feel clear again, It's it's got to be embodied for it to be integrated. And so that piece of learning practices, gentle practices to inhabit the body in a different way. Like I said, through actually saying, you know, I do practice actually saying like, this is my arm. This is my hand. I feel my arm and my hand and like it's feeling water on it or putting moisturizer on it, like reclaiming it from the violation. Skin is our first boundary. And then working with boundaries. So you have to feel safe in the body and then working with, um, if sometimes Women have a hard time with pleasure after that. And so then it's starting to connect with pleasure. There's been a religious trauma. That's a whole other kind, um, sexual trauma, but with abuse and assault. And it's really finding safety first in the body through various exercises and then exercises to reclaim the body um, and exercises to start to do boundary work and then exercises to start to have it be okay to feel pleasure again. And to redefine their their sexual identity or not really identity, sexual expression um, and how to, yeah, reclaim that part of themselves that's been basically stolen from the violation. Yeah, that's so
0: powerful. And what I'm hearing you describe also in my mind is bringing up that this would be great work for survivors of domestic violence to do because, you know, all of the boundary injuries that come from that, all of the sexual assault that is usually involved in that and the traumas, you know, emotional, mental, and physical trauma from the domestic violence situation, it seems like all of those things link exactly into what it is you're talking about and how this somatic work actually creates a healing pathway.
1: I wholeheartedly agree. Yes. And I, and I actually, I, you know, was just working with, I told you someone in her 20s and before that was connecting with someone who did have domestic experience, domestic abuse. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So like I said, with females, it's, there's, there's the trauma, but then there's the chronic stress of being exposed to constant objectification, sexualization, this unattainable standard of beauty the patriarchy, all of these different factors that compound the situation and make it even more difficult.
0: So what are the most Definitely. common challenges about recovering from trauma that you encounter when you work with people?
1: Um, I think one would be if there's like a dual diagnosis, like there's some mental health and substance abuse, and the substance abuse isn't being addressed. So a lot of times, like the trauma could lead to various like mental health problems, but then there's also a substance abuse. So it, you have to work with both, right? Like if you're abusing a substance, there has to be some work targeted on that recovery. Um, I would say also consistency, like people being committed to doing the work for as long as it takes, even though at the beginning, you could sometimes feel like you're regressing. Um, so to not work, not to run when you feel like you're regressing, just to know that, this is part of the work. So it's really staying for the duration of the support, the therapeutic support. Um, and then, you know, I guess there could be social stigmas of like what people think of like therapy is for people who have some serious problems versus no therapy is good for every living person. <laughs> every person on the planet could, could benefit from, from that. So yeah, I would say like social support and staying for the duration of treatment, knowing that sometimes it feels worse at the beginning and then it can get better. And then do a diagnosis where there may be a substance abuse or something else going on that also needs... That's hindering. Like for example, smoking marijuana, um, that's a dissociative. And so if you're wanting to do body-oriented therapies, it's kind of hard to do a body-oriented therapy if someone is consistently smoking marijuana. So you want to... You can do other work. You can do other good work. But... It's harder to do like a deep, deep, deep trauma work. But you could do other work. You could do like attachment work, repairing attachment wounds. You could be a source of support for the person and um, do some deep work. It just isn't as much embodied because the marijuana is a dissociative. So you know, things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm curious because when I was reading through some of your materials, I saw that you tie in yoga and also working with the chakras. Could you just in brief encapsulate how you tie that into the somatic therapy?
1: Sure. I don't I don't do it as much now. Um because I wrote that book like uh five years ago. I think it was 2013, 2014. Um, but I still in different ways do it. For example, like I don't like part of the path of yoga is asanas, right? Which is the physical postures. So I might have someone stand in tree pose to really find their balance and their root and their center. I might have them stand, stand in mountain to feel their own strength, to feel their muscle, to feel where do they find their own center. And then living ethically, that's also part of the path of yoga. So where do they need to be more in alignment with their values? their ethics, um, their moral compass, um, different breathing practices sometimes, being mindful. And then with chakra work, it's just, you know, looking at the various chakras and the like psycho-spiritual centers of, okay, so the perineum, really feeling grounded. What are some practices to help you feel grounded, really feel your pelvis maybe moving around if we're talking about the second chakra, which is like emotions and sexual energy, maybe doing a little bit of work there of physical exercises of moving the pelvis slowly or the third, which is our power center of exercises really related to really feeling your strength, which again, could be standing up and finding your center if you're in mountain pose um, and then opening the heart. So it's just teaching people about these different centers and what, each mean like psycho-emotionally and psycho-spiritually, but I don't really talk about the chakras anymore or do that. I just do the work and explain this can help you feel grounded and this can help you feel more powerful and this exercise can help you open your heart. You know, it's more like that versus I used to teach classes and workshops. I don't do that anymore.
0: Right. Well, it sounds to me as though your approach is a very organic and holistic one that sort of follows where the person's actual experience is leading as opposed to you coming in with the, okay, this is, this is the process and these are the steps that we go through. It sounds like way more intuitive and organic than that.
1: That is exactly right. And that's because I'll have a general idea of what a person might need, but I always follow the body's rhythm. I always follow the heart of the person and I always follow the capacity, the person's capacity that day so someone can have a greater capacity to explore things the week before and that week they are just have less capacity so i really honored the heart and the system and the soul that's in front of me and what they need at that time versus my own agenda so that was that's that's a really great point that uh, how i work is definitely more intuitively and um moment to moment
0: yeah i love that and i also just Thinking back to everything that we've covered and relating that to what I do with the self-defense work is, you know, I talk a lot about listening to your instincts and intuition and recognizing signs. And yet what I'm what I'm recognizing in talking with you is that I hadn't realized how much information our bodies are actually providing that. Unless we learn how to pay attention and recognize and actually like take a quick little time out to check in, we probably just miss. And it sounds as though uh-huh. a lot of what you're doing is you're guiding people in going, okay, well, what is your body actually telling you? And that to me is a huge shift in awareness. Because, I mean, I teach about situational awareness and self-awareness too. But this guidance to, you know, what is your body actually saying and how are you responding in this moment? Because people often will say, you know, that they feel uncomfortable in a situation, but they can't quite pinpoint why. And I think what you're talking Uh about is really a great way to start to become more aware of exactly what's going on that is giving us that bad feeling. You know, when you're talking about feeling constricted, like I instantly recognized what you were talking about. It's like, Oh yeah, I've experienced that, (laughs) but I wouldn't have been able to name it as Mm. feeling constricted, you know, but yeah. Yeah. So I love that you've basically given me a completely complimentary avenue into starting to tap into the knowledge and the wisdom that the human body actually has. And you're making me really want to explore more because I think I have a lot to learn there. So how would you recommend, Mm -hmm. you know, for people who want to learn more and want to explore more, how would you recommend they do that?
1: Um, There's... Well, on my, I have two different sites, like websites that they can learn more about me. One is a therapy site and one is a coaching site. So there's laraeisenberg.com. That's L A R A E I S E N B E R G.com. That's my counseling and therapy site. And then there's my body mind wellness. So it's m y b o d y m i n d w e l l n e s s.com and that's where I do coaching and I have some coaching programs for women. And there's also other podcasts and other interviews and articles on that site. So they can visit that and then just, you know, getting in touch with me. My email is sacred S A C R E D heel H E A L at gmail.com. And I have, you know, several free gifts on my website or they can just email me for,
0: Okay, well, uh, I'll, I'll include all of your social and all of those links in the show notes so people can reach out and, and explore more because I'm sure they're going to want to. Absolutely. Yeah, so I want to wrap it up with just a couple more little questions. So one uh, is, how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage?
1: Um, I would say three ways come to mind one is affirming writing affirmations that resonate that remind them of their own power and strength and ones that resonate not like i'm the most powerful person in the world but ones that really feel true i'm learning to access my own power something that feels really powerful um and then the second thing is Working therapeutically with someone and also, like I said, the therapeutic piece and then some kind of modality where they're getting their body and feel powerful like what you do or other modalities um, where they can start to feel from the inside out their own power and strength in their body and be reminded and be held in that space. Like, yeah, so feel that power. Feel what that feels like. And another thing is, I think, spirituality. I think that because women have been div- and females have been devalued for so, so long, there's a sense of not feeling worthy. And so connecting with more female, feminine-based spirituality practices, connecting with the new moon, connecting with the beauty of their menses if they're still bleeding, and connecting if they're not bleeding anymore with the beauty of that, with the beauty of the crone, the wisdom of that, connecting with their sacredness and their beauty as women, um, you know, across whatever life stage they're in, and celebrating and honoring that with ritual, and self-love practices, looking in the mirror and saying, I love you. You're powerful and you're perfect just the way you are. So mind, body, spirit, right? (laughs) That's kind of what I was, those three practices.
0: Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm just sitting here. I kind of got goose bumpies just just listening to you say those three things because they just resonated so strongly with me. It's like, oh, I love that. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, my last question
1: is, you have a baby on the way, and I believe it's a girl. It's a girl, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so my question
0: is, you are in such an incredible position now, given the path that you've gone through and everything that you have learned and how you now embody womanhood. How do you see that informing how you start to raise this little girl? And how does your partner, what does his role in this look like?
1: Well, I mean, I've already started in terms of um, singing to her. I've been going to many retreats, like feminine-based retreats and other retreats where I'm directly devoting a practice to her. And telling her, her how beautiful, obviously can't see her, right? So she's beautiful to me from the inside, just her soul. Um, actually, the song I sing is about her feminine soul. So it's like instilling already from the cellular level her beauty and her worth inside. I can't see her, right? Inside. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then growing up, there, in terms of my, the way that I wanna raise her is, Always emphasizing more her inner beauty, her her kindness, her love, her compassion—all those qualities. Her her mind and telling her always that her worth comes from within, and educating her about the media, about you know the magazines, all these cosmetic industries that are making so much money exploiting women, about patriarchy, like educating her about these and inviting her to to be weary of how those factors can impact her and what she can do to tell herself when you're feeling these things, tell yourself this so that she can see this is the reality that we live in. This is how patriarchy has affected all of us. Um, But questioning it, being a critical thinker and she's looking at TV, like why is everybody thin and beautiful? Like that's not a representation of all females. So questioning that and taking a stand against that, maybe boycotting companies if there's a lot of exploitation, just to really take like social action. But from my husband and I, and he, he's, he he laughs. He's like, I feel like I got like a PhD in like, feminine studies from you. I'm constantly educating him and explaining, and so he's learning a lot. And so he knows that he will be a protector, and he'll always. Help. He also has very big focus on moral and character development. And that's like his biggest thing is, is looking at who somebody is. And that's going to be the emphasis on feeling strong in her body inside, finding her strength and power and beauty from the inside out.
0: Oh, it's beautiful. She's a lucky little girl. And I can't wait to see how her story unfolds and yours as well, because your story is going to shift and change as you become a mother. And that's going to be awesome. I'd love to have you back on again, you know, a year yeah. from now and, and see where things are. See what's shifted. Absolutely. I just want to say, Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I think, as I said at the beginning, like I have immense curiosity for what it is that you do in the world. And I have to say, now I'm even more curious. Um, And I hope that there are other listeners out in the world who listen to this and have their curiosity piqued as well, because I think the work that you're doing is super important. And I think that the healing that you're talking about the pathway to healing for women is something that we each and every one of us can benefit from. So thank you for coming on the show and Mm. sharing so many different aspects and insights. I, I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me and for all of your beautiful work in the world. What you're offering is so needed. And I'm so glad that people can take advantage of all of your wisdom and knowledge and embodiment. And so it's it's a true honor to collaborate and, and connect in this way.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, this is the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass.
1: You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode, and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.